0: I've already had several of you ask as you've looked at the sermon text for this, for this morning um, after seeing on the uh, worship guide, why are we in Galatians? I thought we were in Isaiah. Um, well, uh, the short answer to that is we are in Isaiah, but this morning we're in Galatians. In um, uh, Isaiah 54, which we looked at last time, there is a verse of Isaiah 54 that is directly quoted by Paul in Galatians 4. And I realized, looking back at the sermon, that Paul's use of Isaiah 54, his use of it in Galatians 4, heavily affected the way that I interpreted and preached um, Isaiah 54. In fact, it had, had been able to be a three-hour sermon uh, you would have gotten Galatians 4 then. Uh, so I decided uh, it, it just seems to be helpful if we could go back and look at Galatians 4 together. If nothing else, hopefully it will support some of the ways I was interpreting what's going on there. Um, and if nothing else, it's really, really helpful. Paul is up to something really special in Galatians chapter 4 with how he's tying together so many things. So uh, we will... Uh, Pastor Mark was gracious enough when I asked him, hey, could we detour like this? Um, he was gracious enough to allow us to do that, so thank you. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get back on track with uh, Isaiah next time. So, uh, Galatians chapter 4, um, the title of the sermon is The Gospel uh, We Wanted, The Gospel We Wanted, versus The Gospel That Saves. The gospel we wanted versus the gospel that saves. Um, Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Let me read for us. Let's read together. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically or as an image. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 27, which quotes here Isaiah 54, verse 1. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman let's pray Father we need help every time we look at your word we know that the things that you give us are, are things of the spirit uh, they're not things to be discerned by our intellect or our cunning ways uh, they are given over by the Spirit of God and so we need that anytime we look at your word but when we look at a passage like this that is it's hard to to follow, It's hard to understand. Lord, we pray for extra measure of Your help as we look at it. Father, I pray this morning, as, as we're going to look at a lot of different texts together, I pray that the forest will not be missed for the trees. I pray that the beauty of the Gospel, the same Gospel that called to Abraham in his lostness, the same gospel that calls to every lost creature today, I pray it will be put on display. I pray that we will love it more as a church. We will be ready to defend it and we will be ready to share it. Father, we ask these things knowing this is high above us, much, much too much for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring these about. We ask Him to you, Father, through the name of Jesus Christ, our older brother, our Lord, our gospel. And we pray that your Spirit, He, will bring these about by His Word in our midst. Amen. Well, we're going to start all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Your handout should have every text that we're going to hit together, so hopefully you don't feel the need to flip a a bunch. I'll write a bunch down. Um, It should all be right there for you. If you get worried here in just a little bit um, that you still have not heard Galatians 4 yet, I promise, God willing, we'll get there. Um, and when we do get there, I don't want you to think that, that that's a spot where the sermon begins and you're not going to be out till tomorrow. I promise. Um, hopefully, uh, it, it will move. Genesis chapter 12. Let's read together Genesis 12, 1-7. Now the Lord... Every single time you see the all caps there for Lord, realize that's Yahweh. That's the personal God of, of Scripture. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem to the oath of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Genesis 12 comes out of Nowhere. If you're following the account, if you started in Genesis 1, which is the first chapter of the Bible, and you began to read, you would read Genesis 1 and 2, and you'd say, what a beautiful account of creation. It's amazing. Everything's great and glorious and wow. Then you get to Genesis 3, and everything falls apart. That's the fall. Then you go from Genesis 4 to Genesis 6, and that's basically the setup for the story of the most horrific event in human history. That is the flood. Then you go from chapter 6 to 9, and we finally get a promise from God to Noah, I'm never going to do that again. I'll never destroy the earth with water again. And then by the time you go from 9 to 10, that's, uh, those are uh, gene- genealogical accounts that tell us how the, people, the earth was repopulated. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. Everything is looking bad from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. And then out of nowhere, you get Genesis 12. We have no idea who this character Abram is and there is given no reason as to why God would call Abram. This is intentional as there is nothing we need to know about Abram as to know why God called him. We learn the reason that God called him has to do with God and nothing to do with Abram. The silence, the shock of Genesis 12 is intended in the text. But God calls him and He promises Abram life and Abram just shockingly believes. It's so extraordinary. What's so extraordinary about Genesis 12 is how simple it's stated. So matter of fact, God promises, Abram believes. You over and over heard things like, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And what does it say in verse 4? So Abraham went. Well, where did he go? Well, he went where God called him. Think about this today when we have ways of grabbing U-Hauls and we move. Think about somebody coming to you out of nowhere and saying, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. That's shocking enough that anybody would do it today. It is mind-blowing that somebody would do that in those times. That's exactly what Abram did. The point is, this is shocking. This is different. Why make such a big deal of this? Because the story of Abram is the story of God offering salvation to a rebellious people. It's important to see that from the very first step, the equation has never, ever changed. Rebellious people are saved by God when God calls and they believe. God calls not because they've earned His favor, but in spite of them deserving His disfavor, it's not a new concept that Paul came up with in the New Testament. It's not something that that came about because sweet, tender Jesus of Nazareth decided to act differently. No, no, no. It's the only way, it is the only way that rebellious people have ever had a relationship with God. It is due to God calling them and making them a promise that they never earned. That's how the story of Abraham or Abram begins. It's how the story of every person in all of Scripture, whoever has a relationship with God, will work. Seems straightforward, right? But there's a problem. The problem is we, we don't like this equation. He promises, we haven't earned it, and we get it. We actually. Want a different occasion equation. Look with me as we continue in the story of Abraham, or Abram in Genesis 15. Verse 1: After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now listen to this. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God continues to reveal His goodness and His kindness to Abram, telling that He will give him a blessing. He's going to give him a land, and He's going to give him a people. But notice in that dialogue that something happens is Abraham is beginning to process these promises that God is giving him. Instead of simply believing, he explains that to God that he doesn't have a son. Now that's a perfectly rational response. I mean, it is. That's how we process everything that we don't have. It, it's called determining affordability. Determining affordability. That, that there's a thing that I want that I don't have, so I look at what I have and I try to figure out, can I afford it? Determining affordability. That's what Abraham is doing. And his point to God is, God, I have no child, therefore I can have no people. God, I cannot afford your promise. But notice God's response. I know you can't. It's a gift. And there we see believing Abraham of Genesis 12 becomes a little bit doubting Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 15. And he's back to believing Abraham at the end of that account. So you think that would be enough. But that's not how we react to God. None of us as broken creatures reacts like this to God. Chapter 16 is how we react because we actually do not want a pure promise from God, even as much as we might think that we do. That is not the way that we want to be rescued. Genesis 16 is how most of us, all of us as broken creatures, prefer to be rescued by God. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant, slave, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me That is really fascinating, but we don't have time to dive into it. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai's, uh, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, uh, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Genesis chapter 16, 1 through 4. With Abram, at 86 years of age, and herself now at the ripe age of 75, Sarah, Sarai thinks of God and all the promises that he's made, and she's saying, I just don't think this is going to happen. So she convinces Abraham that perhaps, perhaps he actually hasn't done the equation right. Perhaps actually they could afford the promises of God. That is, maybe there is a way, after all, they could actually pull it off. She conjures up a plan with her slave to give her to Abram, and then they might have a son. Then, with the help of them, helping God, God could bring about their promises. They are now helping God. This is massively important to understand how we process gospel. Genesis 12, God calling Abraham out of nowhere and him believing and following, that's how gospel works. There, God calls Abram, not out of his merit, but in spite of his sin, and gives him a promise, and Abram believes. But just a few chapters later, we already have anti gospel developing, and you will see it all the way across the entire scriptures. The gospel is God calls rebellious dead sinners and gives them life. Let me put it simpler. The gospel is that God brings about life from lifelessness. The anti-gospel is God uses the efforts of semi-rebellious people in order to rescue them. God uses the efforts of semi-rebellious people to rescue them. The anti-gospel, like a weed in the garden, grows up as quickly as the true gospel. God is so kind to not leave Abram and Sarai with their anti-gospel, with their efforts to help. Instead, He responds to the anti-gospel with gospel, unmerited promises of supernatural blessing, Genesis 17. Verse fifteen. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife by the way, we skipped a little bit there, his name went from Abram to Abraham. So God said to Abraham verse fifteen As for Sarai your wife, she you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Just let Ishmael, that's the one born to Hagar, let him live before you. 19, God said no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Early in the chapter, God had renamed Abram to Abraham. Now He renames Sarai to Sarah. This is... Adding the Yah, that's the Yahweh part of it. Yahweh is claiming them. He's making Him their own. This is gospel. It's when God takes lost people, enemies of God, and He makes them children. He's now owning Sarah. He's now owning Abraham. But notice that Abraham is still trying to make anti-gospel when gospel is present. He's still trying to use his efforts. He offers up his son Ishmael. God, this is ridiculous. I'm 100. She is 90. We already have a baby. This is a neat thing we came up with together. Just use him. Abraham wanted a different gospel. He wanted a different set of good news. He wanted the one where he worked alongside of God to bring about God's promises The anti-gospel leaves room for human boasting. But the gospel doesn't. And this is why we don't want gospel. We typically want anti-gospel. Just give me a little room to take some credit. God was kind to deny Abraham's request. No, said God. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you will call his name... Isaac, I love it. Isaac means laughter. So every single time they look at him, they have to realize this doesn't happen on its own. Right? This isn't us. It's the whole point. You had nothing to do with it. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after. God will bring about his promise by bringing life to Isaac where there is no life from barren Sarah. In chapter 21, God fulfills His promise to Sarah and Abraham. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah and He said, And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. That's how the Gospel works. That's actually how you share your story right there. How are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ did to me as He promised done there's nothing more for me to say i'm not a christian because i go to church not a christian because i do right things not a christian because i walked an aisle not a christian because i prayed a prayer i'm a christian because the god of promise found me and made life where there wasn't life that's gospel the lord visited sarah and he said and the lord did to sarah as he had promised and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at that time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was to be born to him whom Sarah bore Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me Everyone who hears is going to laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his own old age. Do you see how intentionally this is written? Whereas chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar were the main actors with their anti-gospel man-made plot, now, God is the main actor and Abraham and Sarah are those who have been acted upon. God has fulfilled His promise in a supernatural way and all that His covenant children can do is what? Laugh with joy in response. This is gospel. This is good news. But where there's the flower, there's the weed. Just a few verses later, same chapter, verse 8, and the children grew and sorry, and the child grew and was weaned. Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now the way he's laughing is not the same way Sarah's laughing. This is a making fun of, discounting, disrespecting. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Throws a feast for baby Isaac. Ishmael, the product of the anti-gospel plot by Abraham and Sarai, is now 16 years old and apparently disrespects, discounts Isaac and his life. We learn how God mercifully takes care of both Hagar and Ishmael. But the point is, the anti-gospel was cast out from where the gospel was. Why? Because the anti-gospel will always work to discredit the gospel. Now you may be listening. And if you're paying attention, this would be a very fair question aren't you overplaying your cards here? I mean, aren't you making a little bit too much of this gospel versus anti-gospel thing? The word gospel doesn't even show up in these chapters. How are you making so much of it? Aren't you reading into it too much? Actually, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I I, want to actually grant that that's the case temporarily. I want to grant temporarily that I'm over-reading and overstretching my hand here. Because on its own, I would be. But if you will stay with me, I've got one more stop I've got to go to. By the end, I hope you see that there's biblical warrant that I'm not. And actually, all the stuff we just talked about is right there. But on my own, I, I couldn't come up with that. So hopefully by the end, you'll see that. The next stop. So the story of the Jewish people is born from the chapters we just read. You should know this, you've probably heard this. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Isaac is the son of promise through whom the nation was born. Isaac, he's the second born son of Abraham. He passes on the blessing to his second born son, Esau. Not Esau, Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Family grows like gangbusters while in captivity in Egypt. God miraculously, supernaturally brings them out of Egypt and, and begins to make them into a nation. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the next four consecutive books in the Bible after Genesis, they represent God teaching His people what must happen if they're supposed to dwell close to God and if they're supposed to enjoy the blessings of the land. God gives them a series of moral laws. We call the most uh, uh, recognizable ones are the Ten Commandments. And He also gives them some ceremonial laws. Things like circumcision. As the people enter the promised land, God gives them a clear path forward. If you obey, you will be blessed. Road one. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Road two. If they disobey... They will be cursed, and the ultimate punishment will be to leave the very land he's brought them into. That's actually, unfortunately, exactly what happens in Deuteronomy, or what ends up happening, but we see it promised in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 this is right when they're getting ready to go in the land. God tells them exactly what's going to happen, so there's no surprises. Verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. If you disobey me, here's what will happen. Well, The story of the people is that when given two roads, they chose the road of disobedience. The road of disobedience led exactly to the destination that God told them it would. This was ultimately fulfilled by the Babylonians. They came down, sacked the temple, and took all the people to exile. That's actually the exact moment that makes up the scene that Isaiah is writing to. So Isaiah 54, the text we considered last time together, Isaiah is preparing the people how to return from captivity, how to return from exile. God promises the people that even though their exile came out of their disobedience, it was actually a blessing of God. God will use it as an opportunity to make the barren nation of Israel bring about His promises to the nation. He will use their brokenness to show the gospel that once again He brings life where there's lifelessness. Stay with me. 500 years later, after the exile, a man by the name of Jesus, born in a town of Bethlehem, raised in a town of Nazareth, he lands into human history. He is the ultimate seed of promise of Abraham. He is the one who gives life where there's death. He will call forth sinners out of lostness and lifelessness. Put simply, the New Testament makes the claim... Jesus is the Gospel. Paul's ministry is the task of spreading the news of the Gospel. He preaches that this promise of Abraham is actually a promise that is available to everyone who will believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe that He can bring life out of lifelessness. And Paul begins to take this message not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. One of the groups he takes them to is a town called Galatia. And so he has to write a book called the Galatians. The Galatians believed the Gospel. But no sooner than the Gospel arrived and began to grow, what do you think also came? Anti-Gospel. And lo and behold... The anti-gospel that they were teaching in Galatia is the same anti-gospel that we see in Genesis 16. While they acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, they taught that the, the, the Galatians, they needed to help God out a little bit so that He could fulfill His promise. They're trying to convince them that acts like circumcision, that's necessary in order to have salvation. You've got to add to it Just a little bit. Now off the cuff, wouldn't you think that Paul would be like, you know what, i got a lot of other things to worry about. Let's just tell a lot of other people about Jesus and let that go. Like, okay, they want to add a couple other things, let them add it, just as long as they preach Jesus, let it go. This is by far the harshest book written in all of the Scriptures. Paul holds no the things he tells them about them, and the things he tells the bad teachers to do and do to themselves, it's pretty bad. It's rough. Paul is very disturbed. In chapter 4, he brings together in an amazingly instructive way the entire Scripture's from Abraham to Jesus in a way that helps us see gospel versus anti gospel. Verse 21, Galatians chapter 4, that's the chapter that we were going to look at together this morning. He says this in verse 21 Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Oh, these folks like law, they say, they like the Old Testament. Well, that's great. I've just got a question. Have you read it? That's exactly what he's saying. You listen to it? Do you know it? I, just, I want to ask that because I'm getting ready to dive into it. It's exactly what Paul is after. Now watch what he does. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, Jews don't really like to talk about that point a whole lot. They're, they're happy to just talk about Isaac. Right? He's bringing it out. Hey, you all like it so much, let's just be honest. There wasn't just one, there was two. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. You already know this story, we just went through it. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. What does he mean? Well, it was a a plan concocted by near humans to try to bring about the promises of God. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Ishmael was born to the slave woman Hagar. Isaac was born to the free woman Sarah. Ishmael was the son of Genesis 16, the son of the flesh, the result of Abraham and Sarah's plan to help God. Isaac was the son of Genesis 17, the son of promise, the son of the supernatural work of God. Verse 24, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Don't let that scare you. You're starting to think of sophomore uh, English class and somebody's going to run from the building. Um, don't do it. Um, just think there. Now, this may be interpreted by looking at images. These woman, These women are... T- <laughs> I just messed up 7th grade English class. But anyway, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Huh? He digs in further. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem. That is, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. That's them. Oh, boy. He just looked at the religious elite of the day and said... Hey, I just want to remind you that Abraham had two sons, and let's just be real clear you all followed the slave woman's son. Yeah, that would have started a fistfight. For she is slavery with her children. He's saying, Ishmael, who was is born to Sarah's slave Hagar, represents a life of slavery. She represents what happens when men try to figure out how to afford by their own means the things of God. Why would Paul say that Hagar is Mount Sinai? We know that he's referring to the law of Moses. Why would Paul say something like that about the the law of Moses? Why reckon the law of Moses to slavery? I promise you, this isn't as deep and hard as it might sound right this moment. Why reckon the law of Moses to slavery? Well, as you read through the book of Galatians, you will see that Paul teaches that God gave the law as a way, this is key, to diagnose our great need for grace and mercy. But some, like those who Paul's writing against, they look at the law as something that they can keep. And in so doing, they can earn favor towards God. It's anti-gospel. Paul says that this is no different. He's making this analogy. It is awesome. This is no different than Abram and Sarai trying to bring about the promises of God by having Abram conceive a child from the slave woman, Hagar. God did not give the law to allow men to earn God's favor. Say it again. God did not give the law to allow man to earn God's favor any more than God allowed Sarah to age well past the point of childbearing years while waiting for God to act. If you'll stay with me here, I think this connection's key. That is... Sarah was 65 years barren by when God first called Abram out of Ur. God allowed her to go another 25 years barren, not so that she could cook up a great plan to fix the problem, but to show God's amazing power of bringing life out of complete lifelessness. So if she was barren at 65, let's wait and let her go to 90 and now you tell me what's the chance of life? None! That's exactly the way I want it. Make sense? So also, God gave the law to His people not because He thought they could ever keep it to earn His favor, he intended it to show them how desperate, how lifeless their situation was. We are to look at the law and not look at it and say, I got a way to, I think I can pull this off. I got this. I, I got this. Th- I got this. That's not it. We're to look at the law and look at it and go, yep, I'm as lifeless and barren as Sarah standing in the middle of Canaan, wondering where is the baby coming from. That's what the law does. It leaves us there. Point is, that's exactly where God wants us. So, don't follow the route of slavery. Go to the route of freedom. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. (laughs) That's heaven. That's where Jesus is. She, she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. This is Isaiah 54, 1. For the children of the desolate will be more than one with a husband. Now, 28, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Paul writes, the believers in Jesus Christ need to look not to Mount Sinai, but to Jerusalem above. He quotes 54.1, Rejoice, O barren one who doesn't bear, for you will have even more children. Remember, Isaiah writes to tell the people returning from exile, He will bring life where there is lifelessness. And so what is Paul's point here? He's saying, I am connecting that you, if you follow the way of Sarah, that's the way of promise. That's the same way God started it all with Isaac. It's the same way He brought His people out of captivity. And it's the same way He gave us Jesus Christ to give us life now. That is the life of promise. Here we see it all come together as Paul's writing to the children that Isaiah promised would come from barrenness. So think about that. Remember, the whole part that we talked about is how he's writing there in Isaiah 54. Isaiah is, hey, you're going to have children well beyond this nation. How ironic. Now Paul is writing to a bunch of Gentiles about what? Believe the promise of Isaiah. The same promise that said you would actually exist one day, that you as a Gentile would be a child of God. And still yet Paul argues not just to Isaiah, but all the way back to Genesis. Finally, he concludes his warning with the concludes with a warning to the Galatians to get rid of this anti-gospel. But verse 29, but just as the time he who was born. According to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Just like Ishmael disrespected and discounted Isaac, so also those who represent this anti-gospel, they disrespect the very gospel. And therefore, you must get rid of it. Believers in the gospel are born of promise. They are not born of earning. That leads to slavery. It does not lead to freedom. What does this mean for us? Why would you spend a sermon looking at something this hard across this much of the Scriptures? There's one major reason, and it is at the heart of the application. I beg that we see that there is a pervasive biblical witness to what Gospel is. It's not a New Testament thing. It's not a 20th century thing thing the bible is full of it from page one to the end of the book i say that because we live in a time when people are trying to unhitch themselves from the old testament and i beg that for the sake of the gospel We take the Old Testament seriously, love it, and dig into it and find the gospel where it lies. I also hope that as you see it, I mean, just stop and think about the literature you just read. It's unbelievable, it's so beautiful. It's the same story from Abraham to wicked me. It's the same God of promise who calls. It's the good news. It's ours. I want us to be floored by the promise of Scripture in the good news. I want us to see it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I want us to love it. One has argued that the gospel is a diamond the church is the ring that's holding it. As we wear this ring, would we never tire of turning it over and looking at the gospel and loving it? That's point one. Second, we've got to see the danger of anti-gospel everywhere. It will always be with us. It was with Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai before there was Abram, Abraham, and Sarah. It was with the Galatians at the very as the very first churches were started. It will stay with us and continue to stay with us. It will plague us as denominations as we try to add in things like baptism or certain methods or certain means or different ways of worshiping, and we try to make that the way that we earn favor with God, that's anti-gospel. But it will happen in our own hearts as we desire to show different ways that we have earned God's favor. Ways that He can appreciate us that are short of the simple promise that Jesus Christ has paid it all. Let us work like a good diamond ring. And let's protect the gospel. Let's have strong prongs. Let's have a good setting. And let's defend it, protect it, in the world around us. And finally, let's show it off. This is something worth talking about. This is something that goes back way far further than Billy Graham. It goes way back further than any of our witness training. This is something that started way back in a little town called Ur, modern day Iraq, when God, out of no, no count of his own, had no reason he had to do it, called to a man named Abram and said, I'm going to make you mine. Let us go. Let's share. Openly share. Here's the Gospel. Don't you realize? You can't mess it up. All you got to do is explain. God is willing to bring life where there is lifelessness. Will you turn? And will you believe? And will you follow? And be shocked. When out of nowhere, God does it. Sometimes we're afraid because we just say I don't ever see that happening. Yeah. There's a 90-year-old woman rocking a baby, not crying to sleep, but laughing the kid to sleep many years ago because she never saw God work in that way. That's according to Paul, that's our mother, that's Sarah. So let's let her enjoy the nations that she's promised. Let's take it to nations. Let's take it to families. Let's take it to friends. And let's let the gospel shine.